Kia ora, welcome to Cinema in Context as we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm Sarah Watt. And I am William Chan. And today we're missing our fourth member, Max. He is uh, unavailable to make it today, so it's just the three of us. And we are going to be talking about two films, both starring Viggo Mortensen in an unorthodox father role. The first is A History of Violence, and the second is Captain Fantastic. Did you want to start us off, Sarah, and give us a bit of an overview of A History of Violence? Sure. Um, So A History of Violence came out many years ago. I have neglected to look up the year for it. 2005. Thank you, Jeremy. 2005, my lovely assistant tells me. Um, Directed, interestingly, by David Cronenberg. It uh, stars Viggo Mortensen as a father living a... Uh, a quiet, humble, and a good life in a very small town in America, um, running a diner, in fact, until one day some bad men from his past turn up and uh, cause some trouble. We'll just go with that for now. Sounds good. And William, mm. give, us a, give us an overview of Captain Fantastic. Okay, so Captain Fantastic is uh, directed by Matt Ross, came out in 2016, and it stars Viggo Mortensen as a quiet father, um, living his days out in the wilderness of Oregon, and bringing up a brood of six children uh, who he is seemingly training to be, to be some sort of woodsman. So very, very uh, off the grid, very, very intense. Um, but not just physical training, also, they say later on in the film, training them to be like the old philosopher kings of yore. So with, with books, with literature, just getting them great in body and mind. And then what happens is they, their little world and gets uh, encroached with the larger society around them. Nice. So Captain Fantastic, it was part of the New Zealand International Film Festival, so a lot of people saw it then. We had the pleasure of going to see a preview screening at uh, Rialto Cinemas, and who do we who should we thank for that? Because you, you organised it for us, Sarah. So who was responsible for yeah. giving yeah. us that? Our thanks go out to Trigger Marketing, in fact, and Trigger are responsible for uh, distributing and marketing uh, many of the really good uh, art house and indie flicks that we get throughout the year. So our thanks to Trigger for having us all along to the preview screening. All right, should we start off? What, do we want to start with the history of violence <clears throat> or with Captain Fantastic? Well, I guess first off, the reason we chose... I mean, we should really tell our listeners that, the, the, as you know, with cinema in context, we're always looking for some connection between two films, a current release and, and something from the past. And with Captain Fantastic coming out this... Um, what month are we in? Sorry, September the September of 2016, um, it made sense to look back at Viggo's roles as dads. And actually, I think he's got quite a history of um, playing father figures, hasn't Mm -hmm. he? But in particular, um, a history of violence seems like a a, a good counterpoint. So different from Viggo's roles in The Lord of the Rings, which, of course, most people know him for. Um, I don't know how many people will have seen him in a bit part in Carlito's Way. Um, where he's a fant—it's a fantastic. Almost, it would be a cameo now, I suppose, if he was coming at it um, as a famous person. But um, fantastic as a, a whiny ex-drug dealer, wannabe gangster <laughs> who's um, been in some sort of uh, shooting and wound up in a wheelchair. So different from this sort of charismatic horse rider that we're used to now. Um, so, in a history of violence, when he plays Tom, the the loving dad to Maria Bello's wife, and He's got this fantastic son and daughter and life just couldn't be any better and it's all easygoing and he's kind of a a good, solid bloke, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Very different, of course, to the type of father that he is or rather the type of um, 
community guy that he is in uh, Captain Fantastic. And yet both, I, I feel like in both films he manages to carry, carry it off with real authenticity. He's, he's the sort of actor, I think, who can inhabit those roles and you suspend your knowledge that it's Vigo that you're watching and can think, oh yeah, wouldn't he be a great dad, you know? Do you want to speak yeah. more to the, perhaps the how he is in Captain Fantastic? Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I mean, in, in both movies, he is he is solid. Um, I, I mean, I I can't just off the top of my head imagine both movies being the same without him. Um, he contributes so much just in the way he he speaks, in the way he emotes in both History of Violence and Captain Fantastic, um, and it, it really. There's similar performances, but there's specific ways he approaches things that really also set them apart, which is fantastic, because he's, he's not doing a lot with his expressions, and he's not doing a lot with his voice or his tone, but there's just something, something a little different. In History of Violence, it's very... Uh, you can feel this unease, uh, and it, I mean, it makes sense as you follow the story, you go along, and maybe he's not who he, he says he is. Um, but it's something that is so different, I found, to um, Captain Fantastic, where he is someone who knows who he is. That's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. And just that, that change in, in persona, is, it's awesome. I think what he does so well, and he does this in Lord of the Rings as well, is he, he carries a weight. You, know, mm -hmm. you can see that he's a character carrying a great weight. Mm. Uh, whether it's this great responsibility in Lord of the Rings that he's tried to avoid most of his life, or in a history of violence, a man who's actually discovered peace, but he still has this secret uh, history of violence mm -hmm. that he only he knows in his mm -hmm. small town situation. And then in Captain Fantastic, I think that weight comes in uh, later on in the film as he starts to question the solidity of his his ideas or his mm -hmm. values. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there is a subtlety that he brings to the role without. Yeah, making it sappy or over the top. Or yeah. caricatured, interestingly. Mm. So, I mean, for listeners who haven't yet seen Captain Fantastic, and you totally should because it is a terrific film, um, he does such a beautiful job of playing quite a, um, quite a left-field sort of character, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. he, is, he is about as far as I suppose you can get from Tom in um, a, history, a History of Violence. He's living out in the wilderness, as you've said, William, He's sort of solo dadding for the time being these these six fabulous children mm -hmm. who are incredibly well read and deep thinkers and who are on board with what he says without it seeming as though i mean he's not he's not militaristic with them, even though he is saying to them, "Okay, we've got training in ten minutes, be ready." But they're all on board with it, and you sense that there is a genuine connection. They love him, he loves them. It's not about brutality, it's about resilience. And all that, isn't it? Mm. And yet he is this kind of bearded, you know, communism is good, capitalism is bad, philosophy is important, Xbox is, the, is you know, he doesn't say it's the devil's well, He says well, cola, work, what does right? he say? Cola, poison water. That's what my mum said as well when I was growing up. Absolutely <laughs> right. So in a way, he's probably just a little further down the, the sort of the left slash hippie mm. slash... Um, alternative spectrum, yeah. but but still really accessible, eh? Mm. Because I think one of the beauties of Captain Fantastic is instead of our watching it and going, this is a caricature of like some hippie who has these crazy ideas, I actually felt like, I, by golly, I think he's right. That's mm -hmm. how I would raise my children, my goodness. That's <laughs> right, it is poison water, and Xbox is the devil's work, or, you know, whatever. Well, it, it plays on that fatigue of capitalism. Mm -hmm. It plays on the fatigue of 
devices being at, at, at our every beck and call. You know, it, it really, it's quite idyllic in that sense. Mm. In that there's something quite appealing about being, you know, told to climb up a mountain mm. and, and just, you know, live a very simplistic, sustainable life. Mm-hmm. Um, and capturing the deer with the rest of your family and then being the one who wants to do the skinning and the yeah. the organ removal and all that kind of thing. You know, I mean, these kids are great. Talking about the children, the acting, the, the, it actually didn't strike me how good they were until about halfway through the film because I actually didn't even think of them as actors. I just, you know, with the child actors, I often think, oh, these are great child actors. But they were just really fantastically close and, yeah. mm-hmm. and really strong characters. Each of them had a real strong yeah. uh, sense of who they were. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. it shocked me. Uh, afterwards, I looked up IMDb uh, of the credits, and uh, and some of the girls like appear in Nickelodeon shows and this and that, and like, my, my goodness, I, I, I completely agree with Jeremy. I, I was treating the film as if they were either first-time actors or non-actors. Yeah, because they seemed like real kids. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So I keep going. They're such great kids, mm-hmm. but actually, they're such great actors mm. acting like great yeah. kids. But actually, <laughs> they were just such great kids. Yeah, mm. yeah. And the writing for them was, for the most part, really, really good as well. It just yeah. felt so so genuine. Uh, apart from uh, maybe one of the gripes, uh, the youngest daughter was pretty precocious, and I, I felt like. Yeah, it was edging towards the kind of Little Miss Sunshine territory where, oh, she says some crazy things. Right, is right, this right. the Is this the possum deboning yes, guy, yes. right? Yeah, obsessed um, with bones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, it is quite funny because um, I didn't, did not really know what kind of movie this was. Um, I, I know it was at Film Fest and I read some, some descriptions. Um, but my my main contact with the movie was from the poster, mm. and the poster makes it look like some sort of makes it look like Little Miss Sunshine. Little Miss Sunshine yeah. meets Wes Anderson yeah. meets like really really cutesy whimsical fluff. Yeah, uh, and the movie is very very far from that. Yeah. I agree, and I, I actually until you said that I hadn't really thought back on those first impressions, but mm-hmm. I was expecting that Wes Anderson Little Miss Sunshine cross, mm. and it, it, you know one of my biggest things from the film was that it is it is working within really uh, ethically heavy territory. Yeah, and we had a brief discussion after the film about some of my kind of I guess initial emotion emotional reactions to the movie, but. I've had time to think about that, but I definitely felt like uh, this is stirring up big questions, mm. really big questions yeah. about uh, parenting life, children, mm-hmm. what matters. Current current society, yeah. current as you've as you've mentioned, Jeremy, current sort of dependency on devices and screen time. Um, yeah, I, I I mean one of the reasons I loved it was is not just because Vigo was great and the kids were great, but because the issues that it raises. Are, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The sort of things that we are all preoccupied with thinking about at the moment is mm. this right? Is this not right? Is there too much of this? Should we be reverting to a uh, a more simple um, way of living? Would we be happier if we had if we did live out in the bush and scale um, rock faces even in the pouring rain? And would we be feeling more alive and all those mm. sorts of things? And that's the beauty, and I guess now the shout-out has to be to Matt Ross, the director and the writer of it, mm-hmm. because he not only constructed a nice piece of whimsy like dear old Mr. Anderson would, but it's really relevant and really thought-provoking and really now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I agree. Terrific in that regard. 
Yeah, I, I found some of it to be a little heavy-handed. Um, for example, the continuous shots of uh, golf courses in New Mexico, which, uh, have you guys seen Rango? Because no. that, that's, it's one of the established shots in that as well, and it's, I mean, it's so emotive, and it's a picture that says so much. But then there's, there's a lot of things like, you know, larger people in, in the States, mm, and mm -hmm. uh, just the way, the smartphone thing. Um, yeah, just a little heavy-handed, but it did feel like its heart was was fully there, mm -hmm. um, and it was it was something that they were the uh, the director and the actors were fully there to express, mm -hmm. which felt mm -hmm. really good, and they were committed to it. Yes, yeah, that's yes. that's very true. I hear what you say, William, and that's part of my issue with it. Is I did feel there were some moments where it was bordering on preachy or bordering on. I mean, not preachy is not the right, not right word, but it was def it definitely a bit had, polemical. Well, yeah, it had an agenda mm. to push, mm. and I feel like the commentary, commentary about fat people in the states, yeah. and and the uh, and the use of devices, and also, and we, we had a bit of a discussion before we started this podcast how we would approach the last third of or the last act of the film because it's definitely the part that I had the biggest issues with, but we can't really talk about it too specifically without ruining the film. But mm. I think that's part of my issue is that it started proclaiming a style of living mm. over another style of living. A little bit more than. Do you mean it didn't allow the audience to make up their own? I mind? don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. particularly the end scene, the final scene, mm -hmm. uh, was very much a, a celebratory moment. Yeah. Without right. Trying to be too right. spoilerish. But it wore its heart. It wore its ideas on its sleeve. On yes. its sleeve. Yeah. And I, and I thought um, it feels there's an arrogance, bad. or a, there's like an arrogance there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I really felt like uh, it was super Frank Capra-esque, uh, kind of this, this idyllic, uh, perfect shot, or perfect moment in time. Um, because the, the final shot, not, not many spoilers here, but they, they do something a little different where the music kind of pulls back and you just hear the, you, I mean, people are walking around a house and doing things and it, the shot just holds until it doesn't mm. um, and it kind of just says yeah this isn't this great guys isn't this amazing mm. um, isn't this peaceful and, and everything that's everything's going to be okay yes exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and that is that, that is something with a pretty like on the nose agenda mm. yeah for sure now that's interesting because the ending of a history of violence is has the same everything's oh, going to be okay yeah, I had made around the kitchen table right. but but it's almost like a nightmare version of frank right. capra of like um the end of um it's a wonderful life right yeah but but history of violence and captain fantastic both both have that same kind of leaving the audience going oh maybe maybe it is all going to be okay yeah. after all um, where the father has sort of, you know, gone through these trial, tri the trial and tribulations. Mm -hmm. Basically, both dads, and here we go back to good old Vigo and these characters again, both dads want the best for their families. Mm -hmm. Both dads don't actually want that, what their, their, their situation to change. Mm -hmm. Both dads then have to deal with an external mm -hmm. force. And in the in the, the earlier film, obviously it's Ed Harris with his with his gummy eye, uh, well actually lack of eye, um, and his thugs who are the external force who come and threaten to mess it all up. And neither dad wants things messed up. And then of course circumstances take over, don't they? And that's mm -hmm. what they have to deal with. And blah 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 blah. And that, interesting. And I hadn't yeah I hadn't thought it through quite this much. But narratively, those characters go through very similar trajectories. 
in terms of being put into situations they didn't want to be in, having to deal with people in situations they didn't really want to have to deal with, not necessarily dealing with it particularly well, but all in an effort to bring it back to the family. Mm. I want to make it all okay, I want everything to be resolved, and that sort of thing, you know? Let's talk about history of violence, because um, I watched it, I think, last week, and I don't think I'd seen it since I saw it in the movies 11 years ago, Mm. you know, 2005. Um... I remember really enjoying it. I have very vivid memories. I had very vivid memories of scenes. And I had a great time rewatching it. Mm-hmm. I sort of I actually think it's Cronenberg's if not one of his his best film, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think um I was I had a really good time rewatching it. Yeah, how did you I don't know how you It's interesting that it's not typical. I think I think one would say I've not read a book on this or anything, but I think one would say it's not typical Cronenberg. That's because right. it isn't quite as peculiar as a lot of his other stuff. Mm. And the, the the extent that there's any sort of body horror is obviously when you you know, there's the up close gunshot, uh, mm-hmm. and then they and the camera actually then goes on the wound and you yeah. see the the brains or the eye or whatever half it hanging looks. out and that but it's not as much as in most of his other films. So it's interesting that you that you think it's his, well, his he, best or you well, like I, it best. Yeah, but I've seen most of Cronenberg, if not all, I'm trying to think Oh, I haven't seen the latest one with Julianne Moore, but um, oh, yeah, yeah. But <clears> I found I find that his films often don't have much of a heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they are that sort of body horror, but it all becomes a little bit static. Sure. Like, oh, okay. It's not hugely affecting. I really enjoy existence. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, I I think that I was reading about history of violence and he was Apparently, David Cronenberg abhors violence, and um, he wanted to make the violence as straightforward and non-heightened as possible. So he didn't even know it was a comic book originally when he signed the film. Right. And he didn't want to comic bookify the violence. Mm. He Mm. just wanted it to be brutal to show the brutality. Mm. Uh, And and in fact, quite a few of the scenes were a little more action-y, and he cut it back in the final film. Because it is, it's a, it is a pretty languid film, yeah. considering it's got, you know, effectively good and evil battling, or a whole lot of evil anyway, coming to town. <laughs> so it is, it's, and, and it's, uh, interestingly, the photography I found in A History of Violence was annoyingly languid, mm. by which I mean, I don't mind one-shots, that's all beautiful, but I found the editing quite frustrating. For example, and this is not really a spoiler, because you've either seen it or you haven't, or you're about to re-see it, listeners. Um, for example, <laughs> when Ed Harris is standing, standing by his car and saying to Tom slash Joey, mm-hmm. um, you better come with us. And then there's an inevitable sort of shootout. But it's it's cut in a way as if everyone's moving in slow motion. Mm. So it's like bang in one direction. And then you're, you're thinking, well, why hasn't the bodyguard shot him back by now? But oh no. And then two shots later, mm-hmm. by which I mean camera shots yeah. later, you see the bodyguard, you know, belatedly uh, responding to what's going on mm. and, and, and fumbling for his gun. It's like, that's not realistic. So I actually found that kind of pacing quite <laughs> annoying. Um, I, I, I yeah. think you felt that in the, the opening shot. So, um, yeah, History of Violence is, uh, unfortunately, the first Cronenberg film I have watched from end to end. Mm. I really should, you know, keep up. <laughs> uh, but... The the opening shot, like I, I didn't, I knew what the movie was about, and just I guess from cultural osmosis. Uh, was this the first time you'd seen it? Yes, this oh, is also great. the first time I've seen it. Okay. Uh, but the the opening shot had that weird pacing. Mm. Um, so what happens is the little daughter has a nightmare. It's a metaphor for the whole film. Um, but then everything just feels feels really off. Uh, the characters aren't. I mean, it's supposed to show that they're a close family. Yeah. And, you know, it's the the Midwestern ideal of what American life should be. 
every, everyone is still talking kind of in, in a real staccato way. Yeah. Uh, the shot does not, it does not cut, but it, it's not intentionally, you know, trying to show anything. It just doesn't cut. Uh, and everything just feels really, really unnatural. Yes. And I, I, that, that feeling kind of went through the entire movie for me. And I don't know if it was intentional or not. I think, that, I think that's, a, that's just the Cronenberg thing. That's, that's yeah. Cronenberg. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, I feel that when you don't have characters that actually have human motives, which most of his films don't, <laughs> that's a really, I find it really hard to watch some of his films. It just, I can't, what am I connecting with? Mm. If, if neither the style is human or the characters are human, you know? Mm-hmm. Like you think about Tarantino, he's got really quite despicable people, but they you you side with them because yeah. it's it's there's a great energy created through the dialogue the filming and everything mm-hmm. but Cronenberg he yeah right he but the son remember the son in History of Violence is dealing with his own bullies at school mm-hmm. and I definitely found myself uh, obvi- I, and I think I defy I suppose any viewer to say that they didn't sort of rooting for him oh, yeah. when he's being pushed around by that idiot jock and mm-hmm. that sort of thing and so when the kid whose name escapes me now. Um, fights back. There is a sense for the audience of yeah, Gosh, thank you. That was an amazing sequence. I, I loved it. In the lock around the lockers in yes. the hallway and that sort and of thing. And how it just plays with the audience expectations. Mm. And, and you, you know, you root for this violence. Mm. And then, of course, his dad says, "This is not how we do things." And mm. he's been just a huge hypocrite, and everything becomes so messy afterwards. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. how does the dad deal with things, but yeah. with quite extreme? Oh, that that moment oh. when he goes, "We do not hit people in this house." Yeah. He says, "No, we just kill them with a gun." Smack. I mean, just, it's yeah. great, yeah. it's yeah. a great little 10 second sequence. Yeah. yeah. No, but then after that, I mean, like, in the denouement of the film, when he actually goes to his brother's house to sort stuff out, mm-hmm. then obviously he knows that's the only way he can deal with things, yeah. you yeah. know, but yeah. yeah. By the way, I looked on, I looked on IMDb after watching the film, and William Hurt got nominated for an Oscar for this film. For, his for brother, a history for, of violence. For a history of violence. But he is so goofy. I, I'm not a huge William Hurt fan, and he's barely in the film, and he, yeah. he's not that amazing. Like, out of all the people that get nominated, I think the scriptwriter got nominated as well. Okay. But it's the strangest must nomination. Have been, must have been a light year. It was the year that uh, um, Crash won over oh, Broke no. Down Oh, yeah, right, okay. right. So it's definitely a mess of the year. That's an odd thing. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you'd you think that any one of the other players would get... Even Ed Harris yeah. was much better than... William Hurt. William Hurt reminded me of a pen from Penn and Teller. Yeah, just like <laughs> his little his little beard, yeah. his goatee. Mm. Um, one of the one of the criticisms that I bring up about the film, and we mm-hmm. briefly talked about this on um, when we went and saw Captain Fantastic, was the Howard Shore score. Oh, yes, yeah. And I do find anything post Lord of the Rings <laughs> up until I can't even I don't even know if I've seen a Howard Shore film or I haven't noticed it since then. Is it's pretty much Lord of the Rings recycled. Well, you know what? It actually true, and what you say is true because I'd watched Gangs of New York the other day. It was Howard Shaw, and I was like, "Why is, is that?" Two thousand and two, I think. I think, yeah. and he, yes, it is, yes, it is. And I was like, "Why is he using Lord of the Rings music?" And I looked it up, and that's why. And for actual fact, History of Violence is Silence of the Lambs music. It is. It's Silence yeah. of the Lambs. Did he do Silence of the yes, Lambs? Yes, he did. I thought I recognised the theme, and yeah. I couldn't figure out what it's, it was. It's definitely Silence of the Lambs. Because I felt all smug about knowing it, and then looked on good old um, Google. So um, yeah, it is. Because his '90s stuff is great, like his stuff with David Fincher. Mm-hmm. Like the, he he did Seven, and I think he did 
Might have been Fight Club And look, as it's well. good music. The Science well, of the Lamb soundtrack hey, is superb. Yeah, and Lord of the Rings is yeah. one of the best, right. best scores. But you do of, sort of think, do you have to be using the same stuff? I almost wonder if he's run out of he was, ideas. He's creatively well, burnt out. Does he just temp track his stuff again and again? And like, yeah, th- th- this, this fits. Exactly. <laughs> it's interesting because I remember when King Kong was being made in 2004, you know, it came out in 2005, mm-hmm. and I was very much following all of the video blogs and things because Lord of the Rings, I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. It was before I I realised that Peter Jackson was had no one keeping the reins on him and he was just going crazy. <laughs> it was George Lucas. Oh, it's just like, you need someone to test your ideas. Like, anyways, uh, and I remember they announcing that they were, you know, Howard, Howard Shaw was working on the film and then they announced that he's actually not going to be doing the film anymore and they brought in James Newton Howard mm-hmm. in the last minute to, mm. to do the soundtrack, to mm. the score. And I thought, oh, that's strange. And then I think it was History of Violence when that came out and I was like, Ah, that's why, because he's just coming up with the same stuff. Mm. I mean, obviously, this is a huge judgment. I have no no idea what was going on behind the scenes. Mm. But it's yeah. pretty jarring. I do wonder Pop whether... music's coming in. You know, I, I, and this is a, a little bit arbitrary and totally supplementary, but I do wonder whether he can charge the same amount for something when he's basically yeah. repurposing the content that he's created before, or whether he simply says to the director, look, I tell you what, Let's use a bit of um, Silence of the Lambs. That was 93, or whatever it was. No one will remember. Um, but it's a good one, you know, and, uh, and, and it'll evoke the same kind of... I mean, you, to be fair, it evokes the same sort of feeling and yeah. kind is of it, trepidation, doesn't it? Is it exactly the it? same, or is it, it just a similar it, style? Uh, well, in well, Gangs of New York to Lord of the Rings is almost the same, but a little bit different. Yeah. Um, if I remember rightly, it's, it is literally Science of the Lambs, but he could have tweaked it ever so slightly. But yeah. same, you know, same, same yeah. composer, near as damn it, same music. I mean, this kind of stuff is happening a lot recently. Um, have you guys seen that new video? Yes, um, the Marvel, Marvel stuff. Yeah, about temp tracks and, and quoting. And then uh, no, I don't know which one. Oh, oh, you should you should check it out. It's yeah. So our listeners should know. There's this, this fantastic. Um, uh, it's from Tony Zhu, who mm-hmm. does um, every frame a painting, and he's done a, another fantastic 14 minute uh, video about the use of soundtrack in Marvel movies. And without going into too much detail, he starts off by saying to a bunch of strangers in America, "Can you do? Can you sing the music to Star Wars?" And to a man, everybody can. Can you sing the music to Harry Potter? And they all can. And then he says, "Now, can you sing any music from a Marvel movie?" And nobody can think of any. Let's just take a minute, listeners. Can anyone think of any? No. no. <laughs> I love movie music, and I've seen all those films. Right. And yet there isn't anything remarkable. So he does this fabulous, as I say, 14-minute sort of educational video showing us scenes from Marvel movies with the music underneath and then sort of talking us through why the, the music is, is pretty much meaningless. It doesn't yeah. contribute anything. Uh, it, does, it might underscore or it might blatantly show, uh, you know, let us hear what we're seeing on screen, but it doesn't add anything. Mm-hmm. And he then, it's fascinating when he talks about the, the use of temp tracks so that when a film is being cut together originally for the director, the director will say, I'll tell you what I want for this uh, to the composer. i tell you what, what I want. I want something that's a bit like that piece from Silence of the Lambs. So they'll stick in a bit of Silence of the Lambs so that when you watch it, you're like, yeah, this is the sort of thing I'm going for. 
But then there are these composers, uh, Alexandre Desplat and um, Danny Elfman, and Danny Elfman, <laughs> who are saying the temp track is totally annoying because when they get the video or whatever of the film with the temp track in it, and then they're told, "Can you do something a bit like this?" They wind up watching the film trillions of times, and of course, the music that they're hearing while they're watching it then becomes the earworm that they then create something that mm. sounds almost identical. Yeah. It's like plagiarism. But it, but not. Mm-hmm. But in some instances, yes. Yeah. So, and in other instances, I mean, it's it's almost direct quoting. Um, uh, this so when I was watching, what was it? Was it? Uh, it was either Man of Steel or Batman v Superman, one of those movies. But then the Superman thing um, was it the lowest the lowest thing theme, the the slow boom 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 boom, and that is the exact theme from. What, what was it? It was um, it was a Danny Elfman theme uh, about a bunch of soldiers, but then that was used in Rango as the main like emotional catharsis of the movie. So it was a theme that was used three different times. Wow, in very like, different identically, films as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they they just do that, I yeah. guess, because it yeah. works. <laughs> wow. So wow. there. So we started with your objection to Howard Shaw for his yeah. soundtrack for History of Violence. Well let's, well, let's talk about music then on Captain Fantastic because mm-hmm. there was, I mean, I don't, I don't hugely remember throughout the whole film the music, but there were some key moments where there was mm-hmm. this sort of slightly distorted, warbling uh, singing or chorus, and yeah. it was interesting. They did music, music in an interesting way. There was a heavy use of, um, of Bach, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is And, and, and yeah. referenced to, yeah, yeah that's right. Film. Yeah. Well, of course, it goes along with the, the and I'm, I'm doing the old inverted commas with my fingers <laughs> here, the, the intellectualism of the film mm-hmm. and the intellectualism of the people in the film. Yeah. And what I really liked about the soundtrack in Captain Fantastic is it didn't resort to... I mean, God bless the Beastie Boys, they are my favourite group, but <laughs> Sabotage, I mean, we didn't have to have any obvious musical oh, cues like we're getting in a lot of other films lately. When, uh, when that moment, well, before that moment happened <clears throat> in the third Star Trek, uh, I went to see that movie with my brother, he and I turned to each other and we were going, is this going where I think it's going? And then Sabotage came on and we burst out laughing. What did you guys think of the third Star Trek? Just to go a little bit off. Is that the latest one? Uh, yeah, I've not yeah. seen it. I, I quite liked it. I, I really quite liked yeah, it. Yeah, it wasn't too bad, eh? Yeah. Uh, it was a little bit. Um, <clears throat> it was pretty predictable, mm-hmm. and, but I guess people say that's the old school Star Trek. Yeah, splitting all of them up and putting them back together. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was like an episode of TV. Mm-hmm. It just, I guess, articulates how much block, blockbusters are expensive episodes of television, <laughs> and our TV have turned into better mm. than most. Yeah, than, than pretty much all the films that are coming out mm, for sure. Mm, mm. Mm. Uh, but but we, what you were talking about, Jeremy, with um, the choral stuff in Captain Fantastic, yeah, what do you guys think of that? Because there was so much, so much very almost quasi-religious music mm. uh, in, in the background score. Like, yeah. Well, I wonder if that was intentional, with, particularly with the Noam Chomsky day. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. How would that be religious? Noam Chomsky day? Yeah. Well, it's Christmas, isn't it? It's a, oh it's, yes, yes, yes. But Noam Chomsky isn't inherently religious. No, I know, at all, but they're, they're religious. They're, they're making yeah, him sure. like a religion, aren't they? Yeah, sure. So yeah. maybe they're deifying him yeah. in that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that at all. Yeah, I just thought it was because they were choosing to go with classical music mm. or, or you know, the lovely music around the campfire and all that sort of yeah, thing, which was, was awesome. very, very natural and very earthy and like you imagine proper indigenous music to be and all that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, um, they have a rendition of Sweet Child of Mine, which I found hilarious because I, oh, I, yeah. I share the link with you guys. There's a very strange link with um, Step Brothers. 
Because of Catherine Hahn. Because of Catherine Hahn. Yeah. Who's also in, in Captain Fantastic. I love Catherine yeah. Hart and Steve Zahn as that yeah. couple. They were, they were great, eh? And that, just that, yeah, just juxtaposing the brutal honesty of the father. You know, any question that his children ask him, yeah. he answers them matter-of-factly. That's and exactly totally what it is. honestly, yeah. And whether it's about sex education or, or someone committing suicide or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then there are the, the, the parents that believe that you need to protect children from certain truths until they're old enough to... To uh, to handle it to handle it yeah and it's a great it's a great tension because it's, I don't really know how I feel about it I agree with you it's it does and it's sort of that's sort of where the the film turns a little doesn't it from being very very on one camp in mm-hmm. one camp sort of yeah as, as you sort of said preaching to the audience that the best way is the wilderness way and mm-hmm. it's pure and all that sort of thing and you're absolutely right and again the characters are so well written. That Steve Zahn and Catherine Hahn. I mean, how ma- imagine if they got married and double barreled, their- <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> double yeah. barreled their name. Um, <laughs> s- such an such an authentic ma- mum and dad couple. Um, you're so right in their questioning and saying, "Look, actually, that's not the way we want to behave in this household." Yeah. And it's impossible as viewers to to think that they're being idiots about it, mm-hmm. because their kids wouldn't be able to cope with some of that information maturely. But Viggo Mortensen happens to have raised his children, to be mature enough from the age of, gosh, however old that little one is, yeah. four or something, to be able to, as far as we know, obviously we can, we're not child psychologists, we can't get inside that child's head. This is, the, this is the, I guess, the ethical dilemma, because I feel like we talked, again, we talked a little bit about this the other day, but, um, you know, I've known people that have grown up, not in, this, not in the same circumstances as the children of Captain Fantastic, but uh, various different, um, I guess, Communities. Communities. Mm-hmm. Some of them cults, some of them communities. And, uh, and that, that premature uh, knowledge. Maturation. And... Yeah, <laughs> sure. You know, having to grow up too early. Yep. Um, you know, you, you have to deal with that later in life. And I, I, you know, I mean, it's all well and good to have a sustainable lifestyle, but, you know, children, they do need to be, I believe children do need to be protected from certain things. Or, or maybe, put it this way, be communicated in a way that they understand. And I would be surprised if many six-year-olds would be able to handle being told point-blank uh, what sex is. And, you know, and there's some context for a six-year-old to understand those concepts. That's how yeah. I feel anyway. Yeah, well, you, I bet, and what you say is true, except that then if you consider that if that's all the six-year-old has known and they're the youngest of six siblings and they have been raised in a very sort of open, intelligent sort of way, maybe they do have the capacity to understand it. You know what I mean? It's pro- they're probably, they're not comparable to, say, some of the children that, that, we, that we teach who, who live much more sheltered lives uh, in terms of um, what, they're, what they're taught and what they learn about the world and that sort of thing, perhaps, you know? I mean, I have kids that I teach in my classroom um, and I will show them a, a film or a clip or something, and I'm fairly... Like, they, they recoil at age 15 or 16, some of them. They recoil when a couple on screen kisses. Or if they see two girls holding hands or two boys holding hands, and they're like, what? You know, mm. it's different. You know, different kids, different sort of circumstances, I suppose. But that's the good thing, you see. If Captain Fantastic gets people, you know, water cooler movies and all that, <laughs> if it gets people around the water cooler saying, well, I would never tell my child that sort of information until they were old enough to understand it, then the film is provoking good thoughts. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, back to this idea of, of being, you know, waving a flag or having an agenda, it, there's a connection in the film to Lolita. 
Mm-hmm. And you know this discussion around <clears throat> how you you sympathise with um, Humbert Humbert, yes, Hubert, whatever his name is. yeah, yeah. Um, Humbert, and Humbert. then you know you you love him and hate him because he's effectively a child abuser, and but he he you know he's, but you feel you know, sorry for him, feel yeah. sorry for him. So I guess they're trying to make a connection there with. Viggo Mons. yeah. character. Yeah. Please don't worry, listeners. This is not a spoiler. There is no incest. In yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, but you know, Lolita is is wonderfully complex, and it, and it's very ironic, and it ends in a way that uh, undercuts everything mm. that you have been reading about. Mm. And I feel like this film didn't it didn't even attempt to try and do that. It wanted to have a happy ending, oh, which made. It made it really problematic for me. And I feel like it was going on a good journey up until the last 15 minutes. Mm. And then if the ending was too perfect, that Mm. it made it a bit of a, I don't want to say a morality tale, but it was put, again, it was pushing that agenda. They were trying to make a connection with Lolita. And I just think it it came off really arrogant. Oh, that's interesting. I yeah. I really really wanted the movie to end at a certain point, um, and it, went, and and it, it kept not. going. <laughs> I, agree. I think I know the point you're talking about. Yeah, like um, the the, the I totally agree. Totally agree, Jeremy. The the end of the movie is so convenient. Convenient and and almost <clears throat> almost unearned, um, especially given some of the character motivations and what other characters had to deal with off screen. It just feels really, really icky. Yeah, I agree. Um, what I, what you know, I selfishly wanted was the, for the movie to to end at a point where everything was slightly bittersweet, um, kind of real world issues prevail, mm. and you just gotta you gotta take the good with the bad mm. in order for everyone to move on. Everyone has to make sacrifices. Uh, which in this movie, how it ends, people do not make sacrifices. Yeah. It'd be so interesting yeah. to know whether, I mean, it, it, uh, for a bit of context here, of course, Matt Ross, the writer and director of Captain Fantastic, has in fact only made four films. And the first two were shorts, mm-hmm. so I would say they don't even count. Of course they count, <laughs> but they don't count significantly. And then there was a feature called 28 Hotel Rooms, which I'd certainly never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, Did he make the whole film? Isn't it a whole lot of short films? Uh, no, that's directors. that's thingy-majig rooms. Um, uh, okay, twenty rooms. somewhere in some rooms, twenty something. Yeah, no, he made the whole of twenty-eight hotel rooms. It's about a, a couple having an adulterous affair over many years right. okay. and meeting in various hotel rooms. I've not seen it, but this is only his fourth film. Hmm. So what interests me is, did he have complete creative freedom in the writing of Captain Fantastic? Mm. Or had he, in fact... Oh, he's the bloke, I should be saying. He's the bloke who's the actor in Silicon Valley who plays Gavin Belson. And he is an actor with a very distinctive face. And if you IMDB him, you will see... Oh, yeah. American seen, Psycho. Seen, that's right. Yeah. Seen yeah. that bloke before. Mm. So, you know, first of all, I'm thinking kudos to you for writing this terrific film, which apart from, mm. as we've said, the third or maybe we'll give it the fourth act... Um, is pretty terrific. But I wonder how much freedom he had and whether, in fact, he did write a slightly more cynical or natural sort of ending. And, and the focus pa- groups came in. Or, or the powers that be said, yeah. well, you can't end like that. Mm-hmm. We need some sort of resolution, uh, preferably a positive one. You've been dark enough. Thank you very much, Matt. You know, <laughs> could, you, could, could you liven it up? Thanks. Mm. Possibly. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Or mm. if any of our listeners want to look it up and then uh, email us or drop it on our Facebook page, it would be wonderful to know. But, you know, I'd be prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt mm. on that. But also, I mean, I totally hear you two gentlemen, but I am not prepared to 
I mean, I docked a half a star for the ending, mm-hmm. but other than that, for me, it's a four and a half star mm-hmm. film because until then, everything had been so wonderful. I agree. And yeah. so much better than we're used to seeing <laughs> yeah. that I'm like, this is still so great and worth seeing. It didn't kill it for me. You I, know? Th- I think for me, the criticism, it comes from the fact that I, I agree with you. It would be on my top films of the year. Like, yes, it was, I was really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And then it just, it just. Oh, I was like, oh no, no, that was really, left, really good. Right, yeah, sort of and thing. yeah that's so it right. just became, it became a good movie. Yeah, one that I'm not going to preach about too much. You have to go see it. Yeah. Whereas I was totally going to be that person for most of the film. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. On a, just on a slightly different note, to do with this film, I do want to mention two other actors in the mm. movie which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, well, I mentioned three because Frank uh, Langella mm, was a yes. great great power in the film oh yeah um, but the other two is Anne Dowd who's the grandmother mm. and she, I've been loving her in Leftovers she plays a very different character much more villainous or not as likeable mm. and in this she was just this lovely lovely grandmother yeah, yeah. proper actual literal maternal grandmother yeah, yeah lovely yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Missy Pyle, we sort of talked a little bit yeah. about her. Whenever she pops up, it's always a joy. So she was the, you know, Missy Pyle. The, was she the mother of the, the daughter? The, the trailer, the trailer. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And uh, she's just so, she's barely in it, but yeah. so charismatic. Um, but they had a really good cast. Really like, good. Everybody yeah. in this film well, was, was fantastic. All of the six kids. It turns out that the oldest boy in mm-hmm. Captain Fantastic has been in several things, Defiance oh, and a few other things, and his face is familiar, but he isn't a name necessarily he that people would know. so much of a, maybe a real young Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. Uh, with a, a little bit of um, Culkin in him. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was a really was cool a, face. It was a bit Culkin in yeah. there, yeah. And, yeah, and, t- and terrific. And as you said earlier, William, you know, before we knew that these kids... Uh, were actual Nickelodeon actors. It felt as though they were. Um, it felt as though they were, just like real people. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, sure. terrific. <laughs> yeah. Now, interestingly, in um, history of violence, I'm not as enamoured of the casting, but I think it mainly has to do with the fact that history of violence didn't have a naturalistic feel. Viggo Mortensen seems quite natural in it. But Maria Bello doesn't. Uh, she's acting like terrible. a mum. Mm. I think she's terrible. The I've, kids... never, I've never found her good in anything. No. She has one expression through the entire thing. Yeah. yeah. And so and so she w- seemed like she was acting like, quite honestly, the nicest wife anyone's <laughs> ever had. Um, and Ed Harris is a little bit caricatured because mm, he's yeah. meant to be. And William Hurt. William Hurt? The other Hurt? Who is it? William? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oscar nominee. <laughs> a bit caricatured as well. So not as enjoyable on those grounds. But then I guess, you know, we're, we're sort of... It's, it's apples and oranges, really, isn't it? Apart from Wigo, yeah. Wigo Mortensen. But. I do want to say about History of Violence mm. is talk about the sex scenes in that film. Because mm. I'm generally pretty critical of sex in film. Because I feel like it's either uh, titillation... Or it's a shorthand for these characters are in love, <coughs> and it's very rare that you see sex used in a way that is that you know it tells the story. Mm. And, and I mean, history of violence, I feel, does that. Like mm. you've got two sex scenes, very different, mm. obviously meant to be contrasted. Mm. Yep. And it is impressive. I was just rewatching it, going, okay, because when I watched it the first time, I was a little bit baffled by it. Mm. I was a lot younger. I was fresh out of high school. Mm. Um, but yeah, just just. The juxtaposition of those two scenes yes. is, yeah. is such a statement. And it does speak to character, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. it does speak to character development and the development within their relationship and the intensity and all that kind of stuff. And they, so they, I mean, they have sex on the stairs is the, is the second one. Mm. And I was reading about um, some trivia. 
the, the scene after that, you see Marie Bella's character, she's got like a bruise down her spine. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. They apparently put makeup on her to hide the amount of bruises that she actually had oh, while, right. from filming that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. So it's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, should we wrap up our <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure you check out our next podcast, which will be coming in roughly a month's time. If you're interested in listening to more of our Cinema in Context podcasts, please subscribe on SoundCloud or like us on our Facebook page. And if you have any suggestions for films that we should talk about, post us a message on Facebook and we will definitely have a read. Anyways, until next time, we hope you have a wonderful day. Kaki Tano.